Welcome to everyone joining the webinar today. We're just gonna give it uh, a minute for folks to get in their seats and before we officially start the presentation. I thought about that this morning because we can edit the video, but we don't always go and edit the, the audio. So if you're an audio listener, um, hang tight for a minute and then we'll, we'll be ready to get started. All right, we have a lot of material to cover today. So I'll go ahead and start with the housekeeping. Um, my name is Rachel Dager. I'm the Executive Director of SNEB and glad you're joining us for the presentation today. Uh, we actually have a webinar uh, sponsored by two SNEB divisions, uh, the Digital Technology Division and the Children's Division. Um, let me put the... All right, hang on a second. We also we will take questions at the end of the presentation, uh, so please type those in the question block uh, so we can moderate those to our presenters. Um, I also have the chat um, features open, um, so. Um, that's available for you to communicate, not just to the presenters, but also um, to us as. Uh, attendees and panelists. So I'm going to go ahead and drag the handout for today's presentation into the chat. Uh, so if you'd like to download that, you can follow along with the presentation. Uh, when I close out the webinar today, there'll be a short survey and we appreciate your feedback on this session as well as ideas for future sessions. And then watch for an email. Um, we'll probably try to get that out by the end of the day tomorrow uh, that include the link to the recording, the handout, and the CEU certificate that you're earning for your attendance today. So I will turn things over to Jared McGurk. Um, Jared is uh, at the University of North Carolina as assistant professor in the Department of Nutrition. He's also the chair of the Digital Technology Division. Hi everyone, welcome to our Tech Roundup webinar, research using technology for nutrition education and behavior change. We have a bunch of exciting research to present to you today. Uh, this webinar is sponsored by the Digital Technology Division and the Children's Division for SNEB. Please check out those great divisions. I also want to put in a plug for the SNEB 2022 annual conference in Atlanta. If you are in this webinar, you will definitely love the theme this year, uh, which is technology. So definitely go check that out and register for the conference. Oops, sorry. All right, on this slide, we have a list of the nutrition educator competencies that are addressed in this presentation. Sorry, there's a bit of a lag here. All right, and this slide has a, a, a list of all the excellent presenters that we're gonna have today. Probably each presenter introduce themselves at the beginning of their presentation, but this is here also for your reference. And now I'll hand it over to Lexi to start her presentation. 
Great. Um, all right. So I think I have remote control now. Um, hi, my name is uh, Maxi McMillan Uribe. I am an assistant professor of healthy living for the Institute of Advancing Health through Agriculture at the Texas A&M AgriLife Research and Extension Center at Dallas. That is a mouthful. <laughs> so today I am going to be presenting um, some evaluations that we did um, of commercially available infant feeding mobile apps. Um, and we used what was called the app quality evaluation tool. And I've believe that in the participant list, I saw Kristen DiFilippo who actually created this. So I'm really excited to present um, what our results with her today. There we go. All right, so the first year of life is critical for health. It's a key time for growth and development. We see that um, the early childhood diet can influence the um, child, uh, diets during childhood and adulthood. And this in turn can um, influence health throughout the life course. So if healthy dietary practices are established early in life, then you can decrease risk of chronic disease and obesity. Um, also, uh, the first year of life is critical for health because um, children are eating small amounts of food. So we need to make sure that those um, foods are nutrient dense, um, especially during that time. Unfortunately, mothers from low income households are less likely to follow desirable feeding practices. And on the right here, I just have the dietary guidelines for Americans recommendation. Um, as many of you probably know, uh, the dietary guidelines um, just added um, birth to 24 months. Um, as part of the dietary guidelines. Previously, it started at two years old. So this is just emphasizing the importance of this life stage um, in terms of diet. Um, sorry, I'm like trying to press every button to um, progress the slides and it's not quite working. Oh, there we go. All right. Um, so a promising way to deliver infant feeding education is through mobile applications. So this has the potential for um, providing easy, easily accessible, personalized information that engages user, users in diverse ways. So we see that smartphone, smartphone ownership is um, high, um, regardless of income level, though we do see um, that it does go up as income levels go up even at um, the $30,000 or less range, you still see a majority of individuals who are using smartphones. And we do see some evidence of acceptance of health apps among mothers of low um, income households. However, we do not know about the quality of existing commercially available infant feeding apps. And if mothers are using and accessing these, it's important to understand that. So the purpose of this study was to de determine the quality of commercially available infant feeding mobile applications and their appropriateness for mothers of low income from low income households as assessed by health professionals. So I just wanted to show, I won't go into great detail here, but I just wanted to show um, the different rounds of um, evaluation that we did for the, all the apps. So we found a lot of apps um, using various search terms, and then we applied, um, so this was two researchers who then applied um, exclusion criteria during each round of review to then um, select what ended up being six apps. 
the um, app quality evaluation tool is pretty long to evaluate it. So we really did want to whittle it down to six popular and um, the apps that we felt that uh, mothers would be accessing and worthwhile to evaluate. So the six apps that we end, ended up with, sorry, were WebMD Baby, Baby Plus, Text for Baby, Baby Center, What to Expect, and The Bump. So a lot of you have probably heard of these apps, quite popular, and they were all available for free. So the, shoot, um, sorry about that. I think my, um, the transferring it over uh, messed up my table here. So there is more <laughs> below here, but it's just not showing up. So the app quality evaluation tool, uh, which we used is a validated and reliable tool um, for evaluating nutrition app quality by nutrition clinicians, educators, and researchers. And so it has seven domains. Um, oops. Uh, five of those domains are, uh, are core domains, so they don't change. And so that's behavior change potential. So looking at whether the app will lead to behavior change, knowledge support. So does it support and increase knowledge, skill development potential? Um, does the app help you develop a skill? Um, app functionality. Um, it's, so these are the technical aspects of it. Like, is it easy to use, the speed of uploading it? And is it meeting its intended purpose? So does the app have a clear purpose? Does um, the app title reflect it? Um, and so what's missing from this table are two of the, um, two of the uh, domains, which you change depending on the audience. So we looked at whether the app was appropriate for different um, women according to income group, as well as race and ethnicity. So we looked at the, uh, the app's appropriateness for black, Hispanic, and for white mothers. And then the other one was whether the content was appropriate, uh, depending on, um, uh, sorry, if the app, the content was appropriate for um, mothers of low income. So that was our target audience. And um, yeah, so thankfully I remembered the last two criteria there. Um, so we had um, registered dietitian, nutritionists, and lactation um, consultants use the app quality evaluation tool to review these six apps. So these were, <clears throat> excuse me, professionals who regularly worked with low-income mothers who had infants, and they themselves regularly used mobile applications. So um, for the six apps that were reviewed using the app quality evaluation score, um, or app quality evaluation tool, sorry. We took an average sum uh, for each of the AQEL domains. And then we converted this to a 10 point scale because there was variation in how many questions each of the domains had. And so anything <clears throat> above eight was considered high quality. We also looked at inner rater reliability. So um, the agreement of scores between the raters. And we saw that in all cases, there was good agreement. So the intercorrelation coefficient was above 0.6 for all of them. There we go. So here we have the results for <clears throat> each of the domains um, with e um, showing each of the um, apps that we evaluated. So um, in terms of the core measures, we only saw that 
WebMD, Baby, and Baby Center were rated as high quality for up functionality. So all those technical aspects um, and whether the app meets its intended purpose. So does the title reflect what the app content has? Um, looking at other domains, we see that comparing um, low-income mothers to high and middle-income mothers, all of the apps were rated as appropriate for high and middle-income mothers, but none were rated as appropriate for low-income mothers. Looking at the appropriateness of each app and the representation um, in the app for mothers of different race ethnic groups, we see that for white mothers, all the apps except what to expect were rated as high quality. Um, whereas for Hispanic mothers, only one app was rated as high quality and three were rated as high quality for black African-American mothers. Um, finally, when it came to the app's relevance for specific topics um, for low-income mothers, we see that none were rated as um, high quality for um, topics including breastfeeding concerns and support, solid food concerns, and maternal nutrition education with maternal nutrition education receiving some of the lowest scores. So overall, we found um, with these six apps that were evaluated that they were limited in quality and they were most appropriate for mothers who were either of high and middle income or were white mothers. Um, so we also saw that they covered relevant infant feeding topics insufficiently for low-income mothers. So quite obviously for future directions, it's important that we consider developing high quality infant feeding apps for low-income mothers, as well as for mothers who self-identify as Black and Hispanic. So just quickly want to acknowledge my uh, co-investigator, Julie Patterson from Northern Illinois University and her student, Kel Kelsey Jarnell, who helped us with the analysis. So thank you. Okay, um, great talk, Lexi. Thanks so much. Happy to uh, be next in the lineup. Um, so I'm Gina Trapiccio. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Social and Behavioral Sciences in the College of Public Health uh, at Temple University and a research scientist at the Center for Obesity Research and Education. Um, and I wanna thank Jared and the leadership of both SIGs for putting together this webinar today. I'm really excited to have the opportunity to share our work with you, um, which is called I Bite for Health. Um, and I'm gonna share a little bit of the work that we did developing uh, this M Health intervention for obesity prevention. So let's see if I can beat the lag time. <laughs> I guess not. Have to figure out a filler for the, uh, so this is my current funding disclosures right now, um, and I will note that the project that I'm presenting today um, was funded by HRSA um, and the Preventing Childhood Obesity Challenge, the Maternal and Child Health uh, Bureau of HRSA. 
Um, so Lexi's work actually really nicely set up my first disclosure about iBite for Health, um, which is a, uh, an mHealth text messaging based intervention, and it's not an app. Um, because one of the first things that we learned in our formative work was that our uh, participants were not interested in an app. Uh, they wanted something that was, you know, going to come through directly on their phone and didn't require an additional step to access. Um, and as Lexi mentioned in her presentation, there's lots of existing apps out there, um, but the evidence base isn't always compelling for their, um, you know, their, their use. Um, and so we were excited to, to really think creatively about how we could design a program that could be delivered on a smartphone to address some of our key barriers that we know exist to childhood obesity intervention currently, um, but that wasn't an app. And so um, first we wanted something, again, that leverages all of the benefits of using technology in the first place, right? The fact that it's cost-effective, it's scalable, it's easy to disseminate, really to help us address some of our key issues related to health equity. Um, but we also wanted it to be tailored and dynamic and community-informed and target key health behaviors that are really relevant for parents of young kids and then also, most importantly, are actually theoretically driven and evidence-based, right? Because for this group, I don't have to talk about the importance of that, but when you navigate, um, you know, the digital health space around some of these things, they're not always evidence-based or theoretically driven. So that's kind of the motivation for how we um, began to approach iBite for Health. And so this is an outline of the plan. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, this is funded through actually three phases of funding from HRSA for their um, Childhood Obesity Grant Challenge. And this was a really kind of innovative model that allowed us multiple kind of stages and opportunities to develop this project and inform this work. So first it was born out of a primary care partnership that was done with our federally qualified healthcare centers in Philadelphia. We worked with our behavioral health counselors um, to really help them um, to, to learn from them about some of the challenges that they were encountering in the clinic. Um, and then we also directly uh, partnered with parents um, and guardians of young kids in the primary care care clinic to learn about technology preferences, uh, cell phone access, text messaging plans, and content development. And we were specifically interested in thinking about ways that we could develop a photo, picture, and video-based content. So that way we could address varying literacy levels. Um, and so that was really all done in our first phase. Um, and then in our second phase, we really wanted to do some pilot testing around feasibility, acceptability, and engagement, because we know that engagement with our digital health interventions is what's going to actually drive some of those behavior changes. And so if we could come up with something that participants were actually going to open, use, like, and engage with, um, that that would kind of show some real uh, promise for potential longer term outcomes. And then of course, we ultimately wanted to um, test the efficacy of the program, which full disclosure was disrupted due to COVID. Um, so spoiler alert there as I kind of get into our efficacy testing. Um, but so uh, based on our formative work, those two phases of formative work that we did in primary care clinics with uh, parents and guardians and our behavioral health counselors, we identified these six behavioral targets as kind of the key things that parents were most enthusiastic about receiving more information about as it relates to obesity prevention targets for their kids. And I will also note that we did not pitch this as a weight management or obesity prevention intervention. We really wanted to know uh, broadly about what are the key kind of health concerns um, that you have related to you and your child's health? And this is what parents talk to us a lot about. 
Um, I'll also note that integrated within each of these key behavioral health targets, parents were really concerned about structure, routine, right? The hows of doing all these things. They weren't really as concerned about the what's, right? Like everybody knows they need to give their kids more fruits and vegetables. It was really more uh, around strategies. Like how do I set goals and how do I get them to sit still, right? And a lot of these things that we, we learned from parents, so that was really insightful. Um, and the formative work I will also say was done pre-COVID, but stress was also a key concept that came up in our conversations, both for parents about their own stress levels and their concerns about their stress for their child that they felt was really impacting their child's health. And so while these were our six kind of key behavioral health targets, we integrated structure, routine, and stress management within each of these modules. So that way we were like directly reflecting the key concerns of parents. Um, the, the intervention was based on social cognitive theory. So self-efficacy and self-regulation were the two theoretical constructs we were targeting the most. And all of the digital content that we developed, which I'll talk about next, um, we integrated all of, um, was coded with behavioral health techniques. Um, so that way, again, we, we knew that we were hopefully going to be able to facilitate some behavior change in the context of this work. Um, so this is how the, the intervention was ultimately designed. So it's now a six-week intervention mapping onto those six key behavioral health targets I showed in the previous slide. And every week launches with a topic of the week um, that has a YouTube video that's done with these cool little animated, uh, we have Blueberry the Blue Jay who takes our families on a tour of the health topic of the week. And that's sent. Um, again, directly via phone, and then following uh, the YouTube video that outlines the goals and the behavioral health target of the week, we send parents daily text messages with tips, um, again, that directly reflect the key barriers, challenges, um, and information that parents told us that they wanted related to each behavioral health target. And we also created a lot of visual resources and guides for parents. Parents, again, were really enthusiastic about photos and things they could save to their phones and things they could show to their kids. And so we developed a lot of our own content to complement the daily text messages. And then um, again, along the lines of goal setting and self-monitoring is kind of the key constructs for behavior change. We sent twice weekly self-monitoring text messages once midweek to assess progress towards goals and participants would respond and tell us whether or not uh, they were meeting their goals and then we would provide some feedback and then we also had a summative self-monitoring text messages that went at the end of the week so we could see how many participants were actually meeting their goals at the end of the week um, and again if participants reflected that they were meeting their goals we reinforced those behaviors and if they weren't then we helped them kind of troubleshoot challenges um, so when it came down to the timeline for pilot testing, we were mid-COVID, and so we were not able um, to test our full six-week intervention. We were also not able to do objective assessments in the clinic like originally planned. So everything, um, again, luckily was an mHealth <laughs> digital intervention, um, but so were all of our measures. And we streamlined uh, the, the pilot study to just look at two weeks of engagement and acceptability on two behavioral targets, snacking and physical activity. So I'll briefly kind of summarize um, those things that uh, we looked at here. Um, on average, our participants were mostly uh, female, mostly moms, um, as we commonly see. Um, and the children were on average six years of age. The inclusion criteria for children was two to nine years of age. 
Um, and we'll talk first about engagement here. So because this is kind of, I think, one of the most promising insights is that all of our uh, text messages were received by participants. And we checked this on the back end through our user servers that were able to push out the text messages um, to just show that the technology worked. And again, we didn't have any issues with cell phone plans, um, you know, with people uh, not being able to access the content. And we had 87% response rate to the self-monitoring text messages, which was really exciting. We felt that that level of engagement was also really promising. And then there was some really cool um, other engagement that we weren't expecting. And so you can see that in the screenshots here. These are example text messages, other examples of some of the, uh, the visual content that we created, and another example of a screenshot from our YouTube videos. But parents actually wound up liking and loving a lot of the content using that feature on iPhones. And so we actually got a lot of engagement and feedback that way that we weren't anticipating. And we also weren't anticipating folks asking us a lot of questions, but parents sent us pictures of stuff their kids were eating, um, questions, engagement was just really a lot higher than we were anticipating, which was really great. Um, when it came to assessing acceptability, we also had pretty good response rates as far as um, liking or loving the program overall, setting new, new goals as part of the program, finding the content relevant, engaging, and overall helpful, and also understanding the messaging and the content that we were pushing out. Then we also wanted to ask about the program components because we did send daily text messages. So we were kind of a little bit nervous about, hey, seven text messages might be a little bit much, um, but we're gonna do it and just get some feedback about this. But overall, um, parents were really happy with the number of text messages and only one person wanted more. And actually the other area where folks wanted more content was videos. The YouTube videos were very popular. Um, they were the most liked uh, component of the program and uh, uh, about a quarter of participants wanted more video content. And this was the, the key piece of the, uh, the program too that was most shared with uh, kids, which was great. Um, again, we weren't able to do a full assessment of preliminary efficacy, but we did, um, you know, ask uh, using the FNPA tool about uh, behaviors related to obesity prevention. And we did see improvements on some of the dimensions that were in the two modules um, that we specifically tested with parents. So more fruits and vegetables eaten at meals or snacks, monitoring of child's intake of snacks, and then across all three questions um, that asked about physical activity. And interestingly, we didn't see the same improvements on the other components of the FMPA. So that weren't directly targeted um, in our intervention. So again, with the small sample size and the really short study period, we don't want to overextend right, our conclusions here, um, but these, these were nice signals to see in such a short pilot study. Um, so again, we really did have some challenges with the um, initial feasibility testing of this project, but ultimately um, our, our families found it really feasible, highly acceptable, um, and engagement was really good. So I think that this kind of shows um, the potential for this in the future. And so here's, here's where this work is headed next. Um, if anybody on the call is interested in collaborating um, or working with us, you know, we're very open to that because next we're hoping to do a full six week um, trial um, to test the full efficacy of their program. And we also, again, really want to capitalize on the M Health um, possibilities of this by increasing user customization, adding more content. Um, and then ultimately, the goal of this project is to get it back into behavioral um, health uh, care where it started in the first place. So we're also working with our partners there uh, for clinical integration. 
Um, so we had a huge number of partners help on multiple phases of this work. This is not nearly everyone, um, but I do want to acknowledge our funding um, and my key research partners at PHMC um, and everybody else on the research team. And these, these are in the slides, but I did also drop the QR codes here for the peer-reviewed publication that highlights um, the development of iBite for Health. And then the other QR code goes to our YouTube channel where you can view our videos. Um, and I will stop there and hand it over to the next person. And thank you all so much. Can you hear me now? Okay. The mute button disappeared on me. Sorry about that. So my name is Sam Hahn. I use she, her pronouns. I'm currently an NIMH T32 postdoctoral fellow at the University of Minnesota, and I am currently in the transition of um, leaving postdoc and entering a faculty position at um, Central Michigan University uh, Medical School. So today I'm going to be talking a little bit more broadly instead of talking about my own research, um, talk a little bit broadly about the idea of dietary self-monitoring apps and thinking about whether or not they may be helpful or harmful. I don't have any uh, conflicts of interest related to this um, presentation. I do want to note that I'm going to be talking about specific apps. I don't have any affiliation with those apps. They're just apps that I've used in the classroom and uh, apps that I've used clinically. So I want to just kind of start by defining dietary self-monitoring and how I am going to talk about it. This is kind of an umbrella term that I use when thinking about when we're keeping track of either mentally or physically recording our intake in some way. So there are different types. This can be using nutrition labels. So when we're using nutrition labels for nutrition facts and calorie facts to make uh, dietary choices, it can also be recording some aspect of your intake. So whether that is recording the number of servings that you're eating or whether you're um, just kind of generally recording the types of foods that you're eating. But most commonly, I think that in the, in the nutrition world, when we think about dietary self-monitoring, we think about calorie counting. And historically, dietary self-monitoring has been recommended by the American College of Cardiology, the American Heart Association, the Obesity Society, and the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, all for weight management purposes. Um, certainly in the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, it's used for other things. But I think broadly, the biggest use for dietary self-monitoring, and particularly, um, is for weight management. But the reality is, is these this form of dietary self-monitoring at one point was used in clinical context in this very descript way as part of this larger intervention, but that's not really how dietary self-monitoring is used anymore. Um, in part, this is because of the advent of apps and technologies that make dietary self-monitoring easier than ever, right? So we have apps like MyFitnessPal, which has over 50 million downloads. Most of the most likely person to use apps like this are young people. Um, so 50 million downloads, over 20 million active users a month. Other things like Fitbit, which started out as a physical activity self-monitor, but has transversed into the dietary self-monitoring sphere and has over 27 million active users a month. And then other things like Lose It, which has millions of users, but we think of less, less frequently, and newer technologies like Noom. So millions and millions of people are using these things, and it's not necessarily just in the way that we would do it as part of a very descript 
clinical intervention where it's part of a larger context. So we need to recognize as nutrition educators, both in the classroom and with working with clients, they likely have some exposure to these things. Um, and we can't necessarily think that they might be good for everyone. So I'm going to kind of think through some of that. Now, theoretically, and I think Gina touched on this a little bit, um, self-monitoring can be really beneficial uh, by bringing attention to the behaviors, um, you know, by monitoring them, you become more aware, and then you're able to set smart goals. You're able to monitor your progress towards those goals. And ultimately that results in behavior change. And theoretically, this may or may not lead to weight change if we're thinking about in the context of weight management. Um, and certainly self-monitoring and clinical weight management as part of larger interventions has been shown to be helpful in creating behavior change. But I think we also need to consider potential consequences. Um, and in particular, I mentioned I am an eating disorder fellow. So I think about the potential for dietary self-monitoring to increase eating disorder risk. Dietary self-monitoring functions in creating behavior change by increasing the focus on food and how it affects your behavior and ultimately how it affects your weight if we're thinking about in weight management. Eating disorders are characterized by a preoccupation with food, weight, and or shape. So if we think about this critically, it's not unlikely that for some people, this increased focus could lead to a preoccupation. Certainly this is not the case for everyone, um, but it is a consequence that we need to think about. And there's a lot of research that I've highlighted below, including my own, that looks at this relationship. Um, and for example, the Levinson article looked at a population of folks that were seeking treatment for an eating disorder and 75% of those patients said that they believed MyFitnessPal contributed to the development of their eating disorder. Um, so we can't disparage this. We have to think about potential consequences. But certainly um, we need to think about the good and the bad and think about potential alternatives. So can we use dietary self-monitoring apps when they're useful or when they're needed or when they may benefit? Um, without potentially causing harm and are there potential alternatives? And one potential alternative that I just wanna highlight and, and have people think about as they're using dietary self-monitoring in their clinical or the educational practice um, is recovery record. So recovery record is a dietary self-monitoring app that was actually designed for eating disorder recovery. But the reality is, is it can be used for everyone. It is not eating disorder specific, although it was designed for that. Um, and it's a dietary self-monitoring app that really takes a more holistic look at the relationship with food. So it's not weight-centric. It's not calorie-focused. And I'll get into a screenshot of what a meal log looks like or what a um, how tracking looks a little bit different. I'm sure we're all very familiar with things like MyFitnessPal. So provide this alternative and what that looked like. For clinicians, um, one thing I really like about Recovery Record is that you can actually create a clinician profile and link it to your patient's profile. So profiles in the app is, down, is downloadable on both Apple and Google. It's free for everyone, including clinicians and a clinician profile. Um, so it's easily accessible, but you can connect as the, as the clinician um, with your client's profile. So you can see everything that they logged. You can also work within the app to help them set goals, coping skills, meal planning. Um, and you can also send HIPAA compliant notes and messages, which is really unique. So let's take a look at what this looks like. This is a screenshot of what a meal log looks like in recovery record. Um, you can log whether or not you skipped a meal. Um, obviously this is really important when we're thinking about consistent eating for eating disorders, as well as things like diabetes. 
You can track how you're feeling overall uh, to get an idea of how you're feeling physically or emotionally and how that impacts your intake feelings. So I do a lot of work in intuitive eating and getting in touch with, are we eating emotionally? Are there foods that we turn to when we're, when we're feeling a certain type of way? So it allows you to track that um, as well as obviously in this middle section, you can see, you can track breakfast, lunch, dinner, snacks, um, anything unplanned. And then you can also get in touch with some of these common food triggers or things that when we're working with people and trying to change their dietary intake behaviors, we often talk about, um, and people aren't necessarily aware of, but this, this app logs them like where they ate, who they ate with, um, how long they went in between meals or snacks. And then, um, the, the dietary intake portion itself is actually a little bit different on this app. So instead of logging the calories or things like that, you can see there's this, what did you eat and drink box? Um, and when you click on this box in the, in the phone app, you can log kind of however suits you. Um, so if you want to track that you had a half a cup of broccoli and a half a cup of rice, you can do that. Um, you can also kind of insert whatever text works for you, but alternatively, you can take photos. And I know if any of you have worked with clients and asked them to self-monitor before, um, this logging bit of the food and trying to think about the measurements and things or what they really struggle with and they find monotonous. And so if you can actually just take a picture and have that send, I mean, as, as dietitians or nutrition professionals, we can look at that and get a pretty good idea of what that looks like. Um, and we can do the caloric monitoring and the dietary nutrient intake monitoring ourselves in our own heads. It's not necessarily needed. Um, so this could also increase the uh, sustainability of this for patients or, or clients or, or whomever, um, because it's not as monotonous and uh, makes it easy. Then you can have people tune in to whether or not the portion size was inadequate, adequate, or excessive um, to try to tune into those hunger and fullness cues, as well as nutrition needs, and kind of make this uh, thought process on eating a little bit more intuitive and to get better in tune with our, our signals. So just some summary thoughts here, um, if my screen progresses. There we go. Uh, just being acknowledgeful that there are millions of people that are using these apps every day, like MyFitnessPal and Fitbit. And so they are touching people's lives, whether we are directly impacting them ourselves um, and whether that we are monitoring them. Um, so we need to think about how people have interacted with them in the past and then think about just because they're common doesn't mean that they're not harmful. So we can't just recommend these things without thinking about potential consequences. But certainly there are certain circumstances where dietary self-monitoring can be really helpful and really impactful and can be really beneficial for behavior change. So if we do feel like these things might be beneficial or necessary, are there less weight-centric, weight-focused, calorie-focused options like recovery record that we can consider instead? And thank you all. Um, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here and be involved. Um, I'm fairly new to SNEB, so I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, and I look forward to answering your questions when we're all done, but I will hand it over to the next speaker. Okay, I think I'm gonna try to share my screen because I have some animations here. Can you all see that? Looks like we're seeing your desktop. Okay, so there's 
I think if you put it in a presenter view, because we're seeing uh, we're seeing like a presenter view instead of a. Um, let's try that again. Is that better? Oh, there you go. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you all for bearing with. Um, okay, so uh, my name is Melissa Kay. I am an assistant professor in uh, the Department of Pediatrics at Duke University. And um, I'm gonna talk to you a little bit about a project that I recently completed using digital technologies to support moms and caregivers enrolled in WIC. Um, so I don't have any uh, conflicts of interest to disclose. And I mean, I thought I'd start with some background that probably most of you are aware of the um, obesity epidemic that continues to persist, particularly among our youngest population with about 15% having obesity. And then given the impact of COVID that COVID had on child weight, we're probably gonna see these rates rise even higher in the coming years. So a lot of my work focuses on how can we prevent early life obesity? So in those young, young kids, zero to two, and so I focus mostly on the first 1,000 days of life, which encompasses the period of conception to two years of life, is this really offers a critical opportunity to influence a child's nutrition and risk for obesity, because this is when food preferences, eating patterns, and dietary habits really are shaped. And then they track through childhood and have lasting effects on the development of adult food preferences and intake. So um, most of my work focuses on maternal diets. For better or for worse, moms are considered the gatekeepers of food in the home. And so mom's maternal, mom's dietary preferences can heavily influence the foods that are available in the household and then subsequently offered to children. But most moms are not meeting dietary recommendations. And so their children are more likely to have poor dietary quality if they themselves do because of the importance of role modeling and shaping child diet. So that's why most of my work focuses on changing mom's diet as a way to influence infant diet. But there are also variations in diet quality by different sociodemographic characteristics. Again, a lot of what I'm talking about today was set up beautifully by the other presenters on the panel. So um, specifically we know that income plays a big role in diet quality. So people living in lower income households tend to the data shows tend to have fewer fruits and vegetables, more sugar sweetened beverages, and just kind of overall lower diet quality. And so therefore, uh, most of my work works with um, parents and caregivers enrolled in WIC. So WIC is a federal nutrition assistance program for pregnant women, postpartum women, and children up to age five. And so one of the great things about WIC is that they offer um, high quality foods. They offer vouchers for nutritious foods. And the food packages that people can qualify for are aligned with national dietary guidance and are really meant to provide nutrients that are lacking in the diets of pregnant women and young children. And so this is just a snapshot of the foods included in the food package. You can see they're nutrient-rich foods. And the other thing about WIC is studies show that it actually is a really important strategy for early life obesity prevention and that the longer one participates in WIC we've seen improvements in diet quality in both moms and children. But the problem is that participation in WIC is declining. So this graph shows us that the percent of eligible households hold, so those are, that are eligible to participate in WIC that actually participate. And we've seen a steady decline since about 2011 with more current rates at about 50%. So that means half of 
people who are eligible for this program are not participating. And so that's where, um, you know, a lot of my work focuses on how can we get moms more engaged, enrolled and participating in WIC? Because to me, what's more concerning than the lack of enrollment is that people actually aren't redeeming all their food benefits. And so they're really leaving a lot of these benefits on the table. So they're not redeeming all their WIC approved foods. And that's how we know we can maximize program efficacy is by getting participants to purchase and consume these foods. And so that brings me to the pilot that I'm going to talk to you guys about. So this is this was supported by a career development award through the Duke Reach Equity Center. And um, it focuses on the mother-infant dyad by improving diet quality in moms and therefore um, improving consumption of WIC-approved foods. So improving diet quality and retention in WIC through that way um, with moms enrolled in WIC using digital technologies. And so prior to conducting the pilot, we did some formative work. Um, this work, this, these WIC clinics were part of a um, network of federally qualified health centers. And so we worked with some of the providers and WIC participants to do some phone interviews to just figure out what are the foods that are most commonly redeemed? And then what are the foods that are least commonly redeemed? So we could really focus our text messages on those foods. And unsurprisingly, fruits and vegetables were the most commonly redeemed, the milk and cheese, and then peanut butter, yogurt, cereals, whole grain bread, those were the products least likely to be redeemed. And so we took that knowledge and we created some behavioral goals so we gave them um, six goals in total. They got one goal for two weeks. And so for these goals, we really focused on what to increase and what to eat more of rather than what to not eat. And so we gave them really specific amounts to consume either on a daily basis or, or on a weekly basis. These are all foods that are included in their WIC packages. And so we turned this into a three-month texting program. So it was a tailored interactive text messaging program for parents and caregivers of, who have children younger than two years old. And so the structure of the intervention, this is 12 weeks, like I said, they got one goal for two weeks and they got, at the beginning of the week, they'd get a goal. And then we didn't do daily texting, but after listening to Gina's presentation, I kind of think we should have done daily texting, but we offered them one to two tips per week. And then at the end of each week, we asked them a tracking question, uh, like, you know, basically, did you meet your goal? And at the end of the two weeks, we actually compared their response to how they responded that week before to say, oh, you did better or, you know, did the same, things like that. I'll show some examples of the text. So this is how it looked. They would get their goal message at the beginning of the week, and then they would get a tip, which usually was a recipe, but it kind of, it just focused on how to use WIC foods, how to buy WIC foods, and usually a recipe, either a link to one, or we would just kind of spell one out. And then we'd check in with them at the end of the week, they would respond, and then we'd give them a tailored feedback, much like Gina described about, you know, try again, or you did great. And then we usually give a tip to that too. And so we enrolled 54 participants that are mostly non-Hispanic white. We were only able to offer the program in English. Um, and oops, they, we, about 65% had obesity, and 44% were considered food insecure. And so with the engagement, we found that on average participants completed 7.4 out of the 12 weekly tracking messages, which came out to an average engagement about 61%. We had 28% that responded to every single tracking message and 13 that didn't respond to any. And this is what it looked like over time. And so it's 
we would expect to see some drop off in engagement over time, but I was happy that it wasn't actually that big of a drop off. People remain, those that did engage remained steadily engaged throughout the intervention of what we found. But I was curious about some of these dips. And so if you look, the time points that are lowest for some of those more difficult to meet dietary goals like beans, peanut butter, and leafy greens. So um, even though our goals weren't to have this every day, they were still um, may have been a little bit more difficult to meet. And so the goal of this pilot was not to look at efficacy. It was, you know, to look at feasibility and acceptability, but we did, one of the things we did do is we collected automated 24-hour dietary recalls. So ASA 24, um, we use the ASA 24 to collect dietary recalls. We collected two at the beginning and two at the end so that we could just kind of get some ideas on if participants were changing any of their dietary intake or their diet quality. And so we measured diet quality using the healthy eating index and, you know, really didn't see a change in um, scores, which we didn't expect to see, but we did see some um, trends towards less added sugars, more greens and beans. I thought there was one more, but that, that's pretty much all we saw. <laughs> and so we did conduct a satisfaction survey on all participants. And we found for the most part, people were happy with the feedback and the tips, and most of them would recommend it to a friend. But a subset did find the goals a little too difficult and only 68% said they would like to continue receiving text messages. So we then collected some in-depth interviews and we focused on a variety of levels of engagement. So um, some participants that were highly engaged and some that were not to kind of get a better idea of how participants felt about the intervention. And so there were a couple of themes that emerged. One was that a lot of participants did say that they um, changed their eating habits. They became more aware of the foods they were purchasing and buying and um, as well as the ones they were eating. But there were some suggestions for room, room for improvement, specifically around some more kid-friendly recipes. Um, and then also some more tailoring. I had one participant say that she kept getting these messages about peanut butter, but she does not eat peanut butter. So um, generally before we do any of these dietary change interventions, we do a um, behavioral survey to kind of get at what people are eating already, but for numerous reasons, we weren't able to do that. But overall, we did have some positive results that um, kind of trended towards the direction of doing something similar. So for future directions, this was the Healthy Roots, it was called Healthy Roots, the diet quality pilot. The next pilot that we're, I got some funding to do was a responsive feeding pilot. So focusing on breastfeeding and bottle feeding and hopefully eventually put all those together to do a comprehensive early life obesity program. Um, and so a lot of people to thank on this. I wanna make sure I leave some time for Jared. So I'm gonna say thanks and hand it over to him. Okay, uh, what's the, Rachel, can you pop your screen back? Awesome, thanks. And let me get remote control. All right, I think we're good. So I'm going, we don't have a ton of time, so I'm going to zip through this pretty quickly. I'm going to abandon my notes and it'll be okay. Uh, I just want to give y'all a feel for some of the research uh, that me and uh, an awesome team have been doing uh, around using virtual avatars to promote healthy eating and physical activity. And so I'm Jared McBert. I'm in the Department of Nutrition at UNC Greensboro. There we go. I uh, just want to acknowledge uh, my co-authors. Uh, a couple of them are, uh, one's a presenter, Gina, and then uh, the other one is an attendee, Bashira. 
All right, uh, so we'll just zoom through this. But basically, the problem is that many low-income families face barriers to healthier lifestyles, and they have uh, difficulty accessing health promotion programs and a lack of access to individualized health information. So a solution that we have um, come up with is uh, virtual reality and avatars. This is based off the fact that most kids love interactive visual experiences and games. So why an avatar? Uh, it allows for social interaction and tailored responses. It's good for those with low literacy. It can uh, probe and moderate uh, communication with, uh, with youth and with uh, their parents. And it can improve access to clinical guidance. Sorry. Uh, we also want to make the program more dynamic. So we've built in information from built environment databases uh, to provide contextualized information on nutrition and physical activity environments. Um, and we also wanted to make sure that the guidance that the avatar is giving is really solid and evidence-based. So we pulled in the bright futures and nutrition clinical guidelines, which some of you all may have heard of. And so that led us to combining this avatar approach with the bright futures clinical guidelines and the food and physical activity environment databases for contextualized guidance. So here's a quick video, hopefully this works. The UNCG Virtual Avatar Health Coaching Program provides an exciting opportunity for kids to get engaged in learning about nutrition and physical activity. Designed for children and their parents, the program provides a social connection that allows children to interact with a virtual friend that they can also personalize. The avatar provides evidence-based health guidance in a fun way that keeps children's attention. How would you make a smoothie? And helps them learn about healthy eating, snacking, and staying active. Our program also provides tailored contextual information to help users identify healthy food and physical activity resources in their own community. Parents and caregivers can also interact with the program to learn more about their child's health habits, as well as strategies to help their child stay well. Your child said they eat these items for a snack. Is this what you expected? The avatar can also serve as a continued learning resource. Ultimately, the UNCG Virtual Avatar Health Coaching Program will provide greater access to nutrition and health education programming for more families in need. Okay, so that was a short video showing the Avatar program, and I'll just kind of blaze through this uh, so we have time for questions. But basically, we put the Digi Digitech Division published a paper uh, a few years back that was looking at uh, who these uh, Avatar and extended reality type programs have been made for, and we found that there was a big gap that children and racial minorities have not been a focus of these types of programs, so we decided to try and fix that. Um, and so we had developed this avatar program, which we just showed you, and we've done some really cool research to try and understand uh, interest in it from low in from parents uh, and youth from low income communities. And so we've uh, published in JNEB a really cool paper, which you should go check out, uh, which talks about our findings. And uh, we've also done some uh, surveys with community agencies who think that it's a really cool way to reach and teach uh, for their clients and that they think it would benefit their agency. Uh, we've done some additional uh, 
surveys with end users. Uh, once we added the physical activity component, which wasn't originally part of the project, they really liked the physical activity component and um, most emperor reported an increased desire to eat healthy and exercise over the next month. And I even had someone send a picture of some fruit that they had prepared their child after watching this. I've never had someone send a personal email. <laughs> So that was kind of fun. Uh, future directions, we want to enhance and add additional modules around shopping, meal prep, and make more sports-specific modules. We want to connect to more context-based data sets. There's a lot of cool stuff out there. I'll show you one here in a second. And then we're all, always looking for funding and partnerships because this stuff takes a lot of development uh, work. So this is one uh, cool potential thing that we can connect into so we could actually build in uh, what the child's uh, physical environment looks like around their house. And so say if they live like, you know, near the mountains, we can actually show, you know, hiking trails that are nearby them and give them a preview of what it would look like and all that kind of stuff. And their virtual avatar can be in that environment, kind of show what it, what it would be like. And so we can build in these really cool, um, these SDKs or these like uh, gaming program type uh, things into the program. All right. Uh, we have some really awesome community partners that have helped us uh, with this work so far. And we did receive funding uh, from the HRSA Preventing Childhood Obesity Challenge, um, like Gina did. And that's it. Thank you. So now we'll have about uh, four minutes for any questions for the presenters. Uh, there's a couple of questions in the chat. So I don't think, I think some of these have been addressed, but Gina, I think the first question is for you. Uh, how did you determine the time of day you sent the text messages? Yeah, thanks for that great question. We actually, we specifically asked that in our formative work in the first phase. So we knew what time of day parents wanted to get messages and they told us in the morning and at the beginning of the week. Um, that way it could kind of like set the tone for the day, give them tips, and then also, you know, help them plan structure for the week. So we sent the text messages, not at the same time, but in the same time window every morning. So we sent them between, um, I think it was like 9.45 and 10.11, like every morning. Um, and then we also sent the first, like the video of the week on Sundays or Mondays based on participant preference. Uh, there was a question from Melissa about what she attributed the decline in WIC, WIC participation to, and it looks like she provided a great response to that, so you can check out that in the chat. Um, a question for me, uh, are there any rewards associated with or built into the program? Some kids enjoy the friendly competition among their peers, or even just earning points on, or virtual rewards allow them to upgrade their avatar or something like that. Yes, that's a great question. So um, that is where the program is going. And sorry, I didn't have a ton of time to dig into all that, uh, but we're, we're building in, I'm working with some really um, awesome computer scientists to build in artificial intelligence type uh, machine learning approaches. And so a piece of that is building in this reward structure. And so, um, yeah, we are, we're definitely doing that because I think that's a really great point. That's definitely something that the kids enjoy, so. Um, that's all the questions in the chat. Are there any other questions from the, the attendees? Great. Well, real quick, I'll just finish our housekeeping. Oh, I was going to say, wait, one more question squeezed in. 
Okay. Uh, so I can I ask... can answer real quick. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Why is WIC declining? Why did it start about ten years ago? My guess would be um, in 2009 the food package changed um, to be more aligned with the dietary guidelines, and so um, that may be part of the reason. Interesting. Yeah, th thank you. Yeah, thank you for the presentation. And um, if you, you can always reach out to the presenters if you have a specific question. And as Jared mentioned, um, there is a technology focus at the conference. So I think there's a lot of great follow up on some of these topics um, when we will be meeting either in person in Atlanta or there are virtual options to um, participate in the conference as well. And just a reminder, there's a short survey when I close the webinar and your feedback's appreciated. Appreciated. And then watch for an email. We'll probably try and get it out by the end of the day tomorrow that includes uh, the recording, the handout, and your CEU certificate. And then as always, there's actually um, another web SNEB webinar coming up on Monday um, about imposter syndrome. So um, another great presentation. And then we've got two more webinars in June that just got added to the calendar. So please um, check back to the SNEB website and pick your next uh, chance to attend a webinar. Thank you all. Thank you.